You're listening to OMAG All Access, a podcast about all things affecting municipalities in Oklahoma. Hosted by OMAG's Director of Strategic Initiatives and Partnerships, Bill Tackett. Hi, I'm Bill Tackett, and welcome to this edition of OMAG All Access. We've got a very special guest with us today, the City Manager of Sand Springs, Oklahoma, Mike Carter. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Bill. Mike uh, spent most of his career at the Sand Springs um, Police Department. Mike, when did you uh, begin your career in the police department? 1993. I started as a uh, patrolman with City of Sand Springs Police Department and uh, worked my way up from there to most of the ranks uh, all the way through chief. And uh, how long were you chief of the police at uh, Sand Springs? Six years. Six years. And uh, Mr. Carter, in another podcast, will talk to us about making the transition from chief of police to the city manager. How long have you been in the city manager's position now? About two and a half years now. Two and a half years. City manager, yeah. Well, Mr. Carter's been on our radar for a long time. He's a thought leader within the policing community in Oklahoma. And uh, what year was it that you uh, were received recognition from the International Chiefs of Police Association? 2018, we won the Cisco International Community Policing Award. The Community Policing Award. And so, Mike, give us the background on uh, how this came about. I know it was uh, post-Ferguson, and you read the Department of Justice report on that. And just walk us through uh, what the beginnings of your thought process and your action plan were to incorporate a community policing plan for Sand Springs. Right. In uh, 2015, David Weatherford, our city attorney, approached me and he asked me if I'd read the Ferguson report, and I had not. And so he sent me a copy of it, and we started looking at the things that were happening in Ferguson. And I, like a lot of people, thought that that it really centered around race and what became apparent was some of the bad governing that was behind uh, the fall down in, in Ferguson. It was things like their finance director telling the chief of police that they need to go out and write more tickets because they were trying to make payroll and they needed more fine money coming in and such. And so we, we knew definitely we weren't doing some of that, but through that, we wanted to kind of do an audit of ourselves to make sure that we weren't doing anything that was negative or that uh, could lead us down the same path that Ferguson went down. And so it started really as kind of on the back of a piece of paper, just making a list of how we were different than Ferguson. And when it got far enough, I approached David and said, you know, I've looked at this and and maybe we ought to turn this into a paper that we release uh, to show everybody. And uh, so that was kind of the genesis of the idea of the policing plan. Uh, one of the things that I looked at when we finally went through and we crafted the document was uh, what what would we call this item? And so I looked to Europe, and uh, I'm a big fan of Ireland, and I looked at Dublin, and they produce a document that they call a policing plan every year. And so I thought that was a great name for it and kind of adopted that and uh, styled it after the things, the, the content that we wanted to put in for, uh, to our policing plan. And then we released it to the public. So, Mike, let's just uh, start at the first for people like me. What is a policing plan? What is the purpose of it and what is it? The Like I say, the first year that we did it, it was just really that inventory. And then as we went forward, we included our public 
into a public process where we wanted input from them on the way they wanted to be police. If you go back to the beginning of uh, policing Sir Robert Peel and the tenets of community policing, you know, the police are the public and the public are the police. And so we really wanted that to be uh, emblematic of the way we approach this. And so we, we ask our public input. And then as time went on, um, when we were putting down these very base things, such as that we give our officers business cards and the different types of things that we covered, uh, you had the Obama administration came out with a uh, document called the Final Report on 21st Century Policing. And so we thought if that was going to have any value, that we needed to correlate our document with theirs to make sure that we were at least touching the areas that were important. And then I think the other big point I would make about this document is we were demonstrating, if we would ever have an event, how we had taken steps and we weren't what's called deliberately indifferent. There's a legal term of deliberate indifference that cities get sued for all the time. And it's when you have a known hazard or a known problem that you just choose to ignore. That normally in a city might take the form of a pothole that the city manager or the street department drives by and they don't fill and it causes damage. But it could also be in your jail uh, where you know that you have a problem where someone could hang themselves, uh, you know. And so we put a big focus in later editions of our policing plan on anti-ligature efforts when we were building our new jail at our facility, or our municipal lockup. And so putting forward those items that uh, we think are important, not only to demonstrate to our public, but if we would ever have a litigation problem, where we were taken to court and there was a claim of deliberate indifference or a claim of fail to manage or a claim of improper uh, use of force or something like that, that we had pre-taken steps. And although we might have made, we might make a mistake in the future, it wasn't on purpose that that in our heart, our true intention is to do the right thing. And that helps us not only with our public, with their confidence, but it helps us in litigation. So, Mike, your city attorney brings this uh, document, this resource to your attention. So walk us through the people that are listening to our podcast. First of all, walk us through the internal steps that you took. Uh, You serve in a council manager form of government. At what point did you involve your manager? At what point did you involve your union and uh, your command staff within your department? All of those are important to involve. Uh, What we did is is we got our union involved in them looking at the different areas. We received input from our officers. And every year, the officers are solicited for their ideas, as well as we solicit the public. Uh, We hold a public meeting through our council. Actually, we hold two. We hold one that's prior uh, to the adoption, and then we hold a final one where uh, the new plan is going to be adopted. And that's where we solicit input from our public on areas that they think that we could do uh, better. And a lot of times that takes the form of people saying, well, we'd like to see you in the neighborhoods more doing traffic enforcement. And so is there uh, something that we can do to answer that call, which we did. We put some overtime money to that program to specialize uh, officers in being in those neighborhoods in problem areas. So I think that citizen input, the input of your council and the input of your police officers is uh, is very important. Now, you work in a very uh, unique environment. Daniel, you're previous uh, chief of police, and you occupy an environment of high trust with your uh, rank and file. 
Yes. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think you guys have had one grievance in in a very long period of time that was a union-initiated grievance um, that was a friendly grievance, if there is such a thing. So uh, occupying a high degree of trust with internally undoubtedly aided the buy-in from the rank and file, but were there concerns that were expressed or how would you overcome, do you think, concerns that might be expressed in other departments if they were to look at creating and adopting a policing plan? Well, I think the first thing is you go slow. You look at the things that you can find common ground and common agreement on to get it off the ground. And our union, I can't speak highly enough of the FOP. Uh, They came through and they've helped us craft a collective bargaining agreement with our union that uh, covers a lot of these things. And that is one of the things that we highlight because there's a lot of misinformation out there with the public. People want to paint police officers as uncaring, indifferent, anti-minority, other things that uh, we've all seen on the nightly news. And the best thing that you can do as a community is work together with your officers to find that common ground and put forward things that engender that trust with your public. And so I I think it is that partnership uh, to find those things. And I'm a firm believer, a lot of these topics that we have, that we cover in our policing plan throughout the years were generated by our officers. It was their ideas. And it was those things that they thought that we could put out to the public that would um, develop that high level of trust with the public. I understand that a lot of times it's difficult to get the public input or the public's attention. What kind of luck did you guys have when you were holding your public hearings and publicizing process as you went forward? You know, apathy is always a a hard thing with the public in every form of governance, and this is no different. Uh, We had times that we would have a lot of interest uh, because it was very topical. You know, around the time there was the George Floyd uh, incident, uh, we had a lot of interest, and then there's other years that we get very little input from the public, but the opportunity is there. And that is one of the first steps is creating that opportunity for the public to to participate in that. And then I also think that it's important for you to have your counsel weigh in and because they are the representative voice of the public. And so a lot of times you'll get those questions from them and you'll see direction coming from your counsel of the things that are concerning to them. And then the other thing is looking outside of your gene pool, if you will, looking outside of your community and looking at the topical things. You can, if you look at the advocacy groups uh, that had concerns around, like George Floyd, that said, here's our concerns. When we looked at these, a lot of them were answerable. They were things that we weren't opposed to either. And so we were able to adopt some of these things and it not be... A, you were forced to do this through litigation or through some other manner. It was be, we were being proactive. You know, when you looked at the early days of Taser, Taser put out that if you could lay hands on somebody, you could tase them. Well, we always had a, set a higher standard than that, and which is really what it's more through litigation today into. Of there, there needs to be a higher bar before you use a Taser on somebody, and so through our communications with our public through us looking nationally at the conversation and us uh, speaking with OMAG and others, we talked about what was the proper application of TASER. And so that's just one issue that we deal with in our policing plan. But because we went and we didn't have any litigation going on, 
that shows the value. It shows the pre-thought. It shows that you're not deliberately indifferent, and it allows you to, to have that conversation. The worst time to try to have that conversation is after an incident. Uh, either a shooting or a tasing or an in-custody death. If you wait until then, it looks like you're trying to CYA. You're trying to cover yourself. You're trying to do something to try to make it better after the fact. If you do these things ahead of time, then you're not going to be looked at as you were just trying to provide cover for yourself. It's taken in the spirit that you really intended it, that you're trying to provide good governance to your public. So, Mike, as you involved your uh, manager and your counsel, was there counsel action on your document? Yes, we do a resolution each year adopting that. Uh, we give them uh, opportunity to look at the items that in the first, we hold two council meetings. Uh, the first council meeting, they'll look at proposals, they'll look at a draft, they'll see a presentation, and then we'll accept input from the public. Then we go back, we modify the plan based on public input and the input of our council. And then it's formally adopted uh, by our council at the at the following meeting. So, Mike, when uh, you were in the process, uh, we've got two parts to this question. What did you think the value of the policing plan would be? And now that it's been in place for a couple of years or longer, what has the value actually been shown to be? Yeah, I, I think that when we first started off the very first year, we really thought it was going to be an internal value only. We really didn't think this would be something that would go forward out to the public. The second year, we came up with that concept and said, let's involve our public. And that's where it's stayed since. This is our eighth year. It's hard to believe, but this is our eighth year of doing this. And I think it's as valid today as, as we see the issues go forward. It acts as a planning document. It acts as a guide. I I approached Billy Carter here with OMAG about an idea. We wanted to see uh, de-escalation taught, but I asked Billy if we could morph that and co-train that with the shooting simulator. And because how you practice is how you're going to do in real life, just as if you're playing ball. And so we wanted officers to be on that shooting simulator and practice those de-escalation skills with those scenarios that he would put forward. And what we were able to do then is, is to get that real-life experience. And, and also, we were able to impart to our officers how important it was to act certain ways during critical incidents. It's one thing to do that in private and to put your officers in that situation and to give them that good training, but you lose half the value if you don't tell the public what you're doing if you don't memorialize that in some manner and put that in the document so you get credit for it later if there ever is an issue. So, Mike, uh, you guys have done a lot of work on this, and it's been in place for a long time. Was this a document that most departments can develop? Absolutely. And I will tell you, this is not a document that you can go and you can take what Sand Springs has done and just make it yours. You, this has to be crafted from scratch. You can borrow ideas and you can see things, but every, every community has their own identity. Every, every uh, police department has their own culture. Uh, you have your unique situations, and that's why every community has to be governed differently. And so I would encourage you, each community, to go through this process, start it, start slowly, have those conversations, but I, in no way have we seen a negative come out of this. It's always been positive. It's been positive with our relationship with our officers. It's been positive with our relationship with our community, with our council. And overall, 
I think that the recognition we've gotten uh, was because we found something just a little bit different than than what others were doing. And we've seen a number of police departments inquire about it. And so we're glad because uh, we think that's uh, we think it's an idea that ought to really spread across the entire United States. Well, Mike, we're going to include links to documents that will be helpful for um, municipalities that want to take a look at developing a policing plan. Final question. You started this project as chief of police. Now you've been in the city manager's chair for a couple of years. Different point of view. Is there any difference now that you're looking at it from the manager's chair than it was when you were looking at it from the chief of police chair. Yeah, I think so, because you always have your ideas when you're the chief of the way things ought to be, but it's great to see this continuing on through different generations of new chiefs and new officers and the creativity they come up with and how it's continued to be a good thing. One other point I would make is is this is not all about social programs or some twist that people would try to put on it. Uh, sometimes the information that you're putting out to your people are different things that you're doing as a police department that they need to know about. Something that's topical today is uh, how we respond to active shooters. Uh, so we put out to our public that we were getting breaching tools for every officer. Every officer has been equipped with rifles. Uh, every officer has been equipped with first aid kits. These are things that wouldn't typically have been in the first version of the policing plan because it really focused on the incidents surrounding Ferguson and things like that. It has morphed into a contemporary document that deals with the things that are topical of the day. And it's a living document. We're putting the things in that continue to work and we keep them there. And the things that cease to be relevant or don't work, we remove from the document. Our guest today has been Mike Carter, City Manager of Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Mike, thanks for your time and for sharing uh, your experience in uh, creating and crafting a policing plan for Sand Springs. Thank you. I'm Bill Tackett. This is this edition of OMAG All Access. We hope you can take something away from this podcast that will help your city or town. You can find more information about OMAG on our website at www.omag.org or on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or ideas for a podcast topic, please send them to allaccess at omag.org. This episode is copyright OMAG 2023 under the Creative Commons 4.0 Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives International License. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org.